Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from AboutMeditation.com. My name's Morgan Dix, and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time to join me. Today I'm super excited to share my interview with author and mindfulness facilitator Jennifer Howd. But before we start, let me ask you, do you benefit from listening to this show? Because if you do, I want to ask you to leave me a rating and a review over on iTunes. It goes a long way to helping other meditators discover the show. And I love reading your feedback. So back to the show. Jennifer Howd is the author of a great little book called The Mindfulness Diaries, How I Survived My First Nine-Day Silent Meditation Retreat. And after connecting with her online, off and on for about a year, I finally read her book, and that prompted me to invite her onto the show. Jennifer's a great storyteller, and in this show, we really dive into the essence of what mindfulness meditation is all about, and she's full of stories to help really help illuminate that practice. She does a great job in her book of really helping you understand what mindfulness meditation is. And in this interview, we really break it down further into the nuts and bolts of the practice. As you probably know already, mindfulness is an incredibly popular practice these days, and you're going to learn about how it can help you let go of old patterns of reactive behavior and belief, change your relationship to pain and suffering, and how it can really teach you about your mind and the nature of your mind. So without further ado, let's jump into this interview with Jennifer Howd. Jennifer, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you on here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Morgan. I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. So I think we can jump right in. And I'd like to just start by asking you, can you share your story about how you got turned on to meditation and really why you started meditating? Absolutely. As long as I can remember, I've always been interested in Eastern philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at least in high school and definitely in college. So I was always reading books that included meditation and talking about meditation. And it really resonated for me on a certain intellectual level. And also another kind of deeper level of there being a, a truth to what was being said with kind of a capital T, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. That I couldn't really necessarily intellectualized, but I knew there was a part of my being that just knew that this was something that was true, at least for me. So over the years, I did start dipping my toe in and out of going to meditation societies in the Buddhist context, Mm -hmm. because that was really all that existed at the time. You know, I was living in New York City. I graduated from college and life started becoming more challenging, you know, dealing with the stress of a job and taking care of myself. And so that's when I really found myself seeking some sort of way to 
kind of help myself manage the stress and everything that I was going through. And so I, I would lean back in to the books and then, again, dip my toe into a certain type of Buddhist meditation. When I was there in the societies, I again, it was this feeling that there's truth being spoken here, but the context for me didn't feel right, meaning there was kind of a religious feeling, even mm -hmm. though Buddhism mm -hmm. isn't considered a religion, it's a philosophy. But there still was a feeling to me that I was getting when I was going to these places that there was religion going on. <laughs> yeah, you got like 2,000 years of tradition bearing down on you yeah. one way. Or, yeah, I got it. Yeah, and people in robes in some of these places and stuff like that, that like visual cues that were just, I felt uncomfortable with, you right. know, because of the conditioning that we have around all of that. Yeah. Just wasn't for me, right? So I would only get so far and then be like, ah, I don't feel entirely safe diving, you know, and letting go into this, right? So I would pull out. Mm -hmm. and not really create a practice that was regular in any way, shape, or form. Right. Um, other than the reading, I would say that was the only kind of regular practice that I was doing. And then my mother passed away in 2001. Mm -hmm. and I was 27 at the time. And that was really, really challenging for me. It was the first really difficult thing that I had gone through in mm -hmm. my life. I had led a relatively charmed life up until that point. Right. Um, for the most part. Uh, and this was a real huge blow for me. And I had no coping mechanisms for dealing with the grief and the pain that I was going through. My family was very typical kind of New England. Nobody talks about their feelings. You know, a couple of drinks helps make it go away. So I didn't have it modeled in terms of how to grieve, how to feel, really, yes. to be honest with yes. you. So what ended up happening is I ended up self-medicating. Also, I did go into therapy at that time and, and started going on to anti-anxiety drugs and antidepressants because I will say that anxiety was something I had always suffered from and was, mm -hmm. was actually something I was looking for relief from prior to my mom's passing as well and one of the reasons mm -hmm. why I was looking to meditation mm -hmm. as well. But really, you know, long story short with that is I was avoiding my feelings and stuffing them down. And not really processing them. And over the years, living in New York City and not really paying attention to myself, really ignoring what was really going on for me, it built up. And I started noticing that I was becoming really neurotic. And I just got to this place where I felt like sensorially overloaded. You know, right. like everything is loud, visually stimulating. There are smells everywhere, you know, like it's just sensory overload. And I kind of felt like I was collapsing in on myself. And I really just wanted to open up instead, but I didn't feel like I could. Yeah. If that makes sense, right? Yeah. I didn't yeah. have the space physically or sensorially to do that. Hmm. And I was also in a relationship that was toxic. I had been with her for a couple of years. We decided to move to Los Angeles because I wanted to find some space. Um, mm -hmm. And at the time, I was working in the entertainment industry. And I was like, okay, if I'm not in New York, I have to be in L.A. in order to work. So right. that's why I chose Los Angeles. And then getting out here, the stress of the move in an already very challenging relationship just built and built and built. And some giant shouting match at one point between us turned into 
her crossing a physical line. And the cops showed up and she was arrested. And it was really one of those moments I was standing on the lawn <laughs> of, a, wow. of, of our little Hollywood bungalow. And I felt like I was in a lifetime movie of the week where yeah. everything was kind of moving in slow motion. You know, like I'm watching her in handcuffs getting hauled away into the cop car. I see the lights from the cop car swirling, the red and the blue. And, you know, people are gathering, wondering what's going on on the street. And I just, I looked at myself and I said, how the hell, <laughs> excuse my language, but how the hell sure. did I get here? How did, yeah. how did this moment happen? This is not me as I know myself to the core. Like, how, how did I end up here? Right after that, it was a huge wake-up call for me. I really recognized the reason I got there was because I wasn't paying attention to my life. Mm. I wasn't present for the decisions that I was making. And I was making choices that were not in alignment with who, at the core, I knew I was. I also recognized, especially with the way that I was heading with using substances, I also was smoking a lot of, of weed at that point to kind of numb mm couple of glasses of wine here and there every day, pretty much at night to take the edge off Right on top of the other prescription medications that I was on, that I was borderline getting into a place where if I didn't really start paying attention to what was going on with me, that I was probably not going to be alive for much longer. Like I was heading in that really downward spiral direction. Got it. And so that was the moment that I was like, okay, I have to get serious about getting to know myself and learning how to feel and just doing all the inner work that I've been avoiding <laughs> my entire life, you know, getting serious about. Yeah. So at that point I started again, kind of the similar thing that I did in New York where I was poking in and out of the different meditation societies here in Los Angeles and coming up against the same kind of feelings of, wow, the stuff that's happening here is truth. I'm really responding to the practice of meditation but I'm sitting around, you know, all of these ornate statues and these people in, in robes and I don't feel comfortable. This isn't, this doesn't resonate for me. I did finally find one society out here called Against the Stream that I don't know if you're familiar with. I've known about Noah Levine for a while and then was reminded reading your book. So ah. a little bit, yes. Yeah. Basically, for those who are listening who don't know about Against the Stream, um, I'm sure they have other locations, but in Los Angeles, the vibe here, at least in the Melrose side of town, which is where I was living, is very rock and roll. <laughs> Noah himself is really cool cat, totally tatted up from head to toe. Nice. The very non-traditional, stereotypically non-traditional Buddhist person, right? Right. Someone you would not think was a meditation teacher. And so he attracts quite a lot of kind of rock and rollers, you know, and the space itself is very minimal and clean. So I felt more comfortable in that context. It must have been a revelation to find something like that. It was, I will say it was. And yet still, on some level, the talk about Buddha and all that stuff, it still wasn't entirely landing for me. So I was like, mm. okay. But what happened when I was there was I did start a regular practice. I was able to go there regularly and at that point was able to start practicing on my own. 
And when I started, I had a hard time sitting for three minutes. Like that to me was an eternity yeah. at, at that point in my life. And it was really challenging for me to, you know, make myself sit down and sit in silence for three minutes every day, but I did it. And I went to the, against the stream t- for support and for some classes and stuff to kind of help me get my practice going. And then at, at one point, like I said, I still, I didn't feel like I could fully dive into the extent that I wanted to. And I was leaving one day and I saw a little card for UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. And it said that it was a secular program for mindfulness. And I didn't even know what secular meant, right? And <laughs> I went home and I looked That's at great. it. And I saw that it essentially means non-religious. So I was like, wait a minute, they're taking all of the stuff that really resonates for me they're stripping out the stuff that I don't feel quite comfortable with and they're replacing it with science. And I was like, hello, ding, ding, mm-hmm. ding, ding, right? And mm-hmm. so I got to check this out. So I went to my first class and really, Morgan, it was one of those cliched proverbial, the bells went off and the, oh. you know, like, oh, sounds. That's awesome. <laughs> it was kind of crazy, but it really was, this is the thing I've been waiting for. Yeah. And thank you, universe, for delivering it to me now because I really need this. I mm. need this. I ended up taking a couple of classes there. Just everything about it fit for me. I started a daily practice at that point. And that's really the story of kind of how I got into it. Yeah. Yes. So how long ago was that? Was that, that was about five years ago? Yeah. 2010, I think is when I discovered UCLA Mm -hmm. and started my regular practice. Yeah. And then 2011, I started a daily practice. All right. So two questions. One, when you started your daily practice, I'd love to just hear a little bit about what changed for you once you committed to a daily practice. Because it sounds like that was a pivotal point for you. And then second question related, when, why, and how did you then decide to become a mindfulness facilitator? And then I want to ask you towards the end of the interview more about that. But I have these two questions, and then I want to ask you more about your book and then swing around back to it at the end. Sure. Okay. So the first question. Yeah. What happened when you started a daily practice? Wow. Yes. Everything changed, Hmm. started changing for me. You know, I had that moment when I realized, Hey, I need to make the change. Yeah. And then at that point, my intention was set and I Mm -hmm. sought out what it was that I was seeking and when I found the UCLA program and I started actually practicing What happened was slowly but surely, I started shedding a lot of these kind of old belief patterns that I had been stuck in, I'll say, Mm -hmm. and behavioral patterns that I had been stuck in that were really not serving me. Yeah. Uh, And I should say, too, that part of my journey to getting to the daily practice too was because I had just, you know, split up from my relationship and I was in a new city mm-hmm, <laughs> and barely mm-hmm. knew anybody. Um, and was really clear because I had been jumping from relationship to relationship. I was kind of a serial monogamist that I had not spent a lot of time or any time on my own as an adult that I needed to spend a lot of time on my own. That's huge. Yeah. And so 
you know, I did a little mini hermitage in a way because mm-hmm. I had this little bungalow, a roommate who was never home and not knowing anybody and some money saved up. So I, I wasn't in dire need of having to be out in the world to do a lot of work and stuff. I started my practice in this kind of like safe environment of my little house where I was doing the meditation. I was doing a lot of yoga. I was doing a lot of writing and journaling. So it was kind of a whole, more of a holistic approach. And the meditation was a huge part of that. Just want to be clear that it wasn't just the meditation that kind of helped me gain all of these insights, but it was by all means a certainly a huge part of it. A huge, yeah. huge part of it. And therapy was also <laughs> was also in there too. Yes, yes. Um, I often hear meditation as being touted as kind of a, a catch-all, right? Yeah, yeah, like a panacea. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to paint that picture like that was the only thing that helped bring about all these changes. But I do want to reiterate that it was a huge part of it <laughs> for what Great. that's worth. So when I started my daily practice and... I started letting go of a lot of these old behavioral patterns and beliefs. I think the biggest thing that really kept me going was I would often find myself in situations where my past self would be reacting a certain way. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, I found myself not reacting that way. An example being like, I don't know, being stuck in traffic, for instance, right? Yeah, a good one. Like the old me prior to my practice would have just immediately gotten really ticked off and just like impatient and agitated and all of that stuff. And I found myself instead just sitting there very peacefully. And I remember having these moments where I was like, when am I going to start flipping out? Like I had, you know, and that's just an example or another example is like someone yelling at me or getting angry at me or something. And I'm just sitting there and I'm not reacting in a negative Mm. way back. And Mm. Those kind of things started adding up where I was just not getting hooked by my emotions like I was in the past where I was able to distance myself from the reactive patterns that I had and thus make wiser choices (laughs) that led to outcomes that were a lot better off for my well-being. I'll put it that Mm. way. And that continues to grow after five years of, of practice. I'm continually still surprised at moments and things that I'm going through that I'm just handling in ways that me prior to my regular practice, it's like I'm a totally different person. That's awesome. So that's really clear. I mean, one, I I really get the sense of like the shift from that moment when you're on the lawn and the blue and the red lights are flashing, this sort of life pivot at a moment or an inflection point in your life and then a real healing process. And then kind of transformative process that you initiated or that just started at that time. When you describe now the kind of surprise, mm-hmm. even that you experience at your capacity to demonstrate that equal poise, that equanimity in response to life. I have to say, after reading your book, I'm not totally surprised. I mean, I know life hurls things at us and you know you don't know what's going to happen, of course, but I feel like Well, one, it's a great point to transition in this interview because I'd like to talk about your book because it was was so great. But after reading your book, I just want to say I'm not totally surprised to hear what you're saying. (laughs) Everyone, it's a wonderful book. Uh, Jennifer wrote this book called The Mindfulness Diaries. And so I enjoyed reading your book a lot and I read most of it. And 
so it's the mindfulness diaries, how I survived my first nine day silent meditation retreat. You're an awesome storyteller. And I found for myself, one of the things I loved about your book is the way, and you're already starting to hint at this in the way you're telling your story is, is the way that you objectify a lot of the, the narratives and voices in your head. A lot of the book really unpacks that, but you do it through your own story, which is great because it brings the reader in real time into your experience, into your subjective experience of going on this retreat. But then there's like layers where you get to see what your mind is saying to you the whole time. It's commentary on the process of going through the retreat. And so I thought like, one, it was really effective the way you did that. And a lot of the things I could identify with like, when you would objectify your inner voices in your head, they were very, as you said, they kind of had often this catastrophic tone, doom and gloom, they're judgmental. And then sometimes it's just crazy, obviously, what our mind says. Obviously, I can relate to that. So I know from my own practice, like a huge value I get from meditation is this process you described in the book of coming to understand see through and objectify the voices and narratives running through your mind. And I feel you do a great job at showing how mindfulness is a practice of being attentive to these voices so they don't, in your words, you use the word hijack, which I love, so they don't hijack your life, your choices, your emotions, your experience. So I wanted to ask, can you speak to that some more? Speak to this process of objectifying the voices in your head and, and how mindfulness in your experience is a practice that really helps you do that. Absolutely. This is the single most, in my opinion, the single most important element is getting this distinction mm -hmm. that we don't have to let ourselves be hijacked by these voices. Yeah. And what it boils down for me is, you know, in the past, prior to my meditation practice, I believed and had no other way to know really otherwise that yeah. those voices were me. Mm -hmm. that I had no separation from those voices. Those voices mm -hmm. were telling me what to do and how to be, and, and hence why my life was so chaotic. <laughs> yeah. Because they were constantly hijacking my experiences and I was going along with them. What's so, to me, just amazing about mindfulness and meditation, specifically the mindfulness meditation technique, because I'm, not, I'm honestly not familiar with other types of meditation, so I can't really speak to them. Sure. But with the mindfulness meditation technique, it really is the simple, not necessarily easy, but the simple act of noticing when your attention has drifted away from your anchor point. In most cases, it's the breath and the sensation of the breath. Noticing when the attention has drifted to it to a thought where your mind is thinking. When you're able to notice that the thought is there, you can then detach yourself from the thought and step away from it, disengage from it, and consciously redirect your attention somewhere else. In the case of the meditation, it's back to the breath, and you just keep doing this cycle over and over again. And what you do in doing so is you build the ability off the cushion 
or off the chair, wherever you're meditating, to do that in real life. So when you're walking around and all of a sudden some sort of thought shows up that is starting to hijack you, you can stop and say, hey, wait a minute, I can disengage from this and redirect my attention somewhere that's more skillful in a way that's going to serve me better than getting caught up in whatever negativity my mind is trying to make up for me right now. Right. Does that, does that right. make sense? Absolutely. I feel like you set the tone in the book early on. So, cause it's kind of clear, like there's this parallel voice that runs through the book and it's always in italicized or all caps. It's always the voice of doubt. It's always the voice of panic. It's always the judgmental voice. And it's a really effective device that you've used in the writing to kind of draw attention to the voice. So it's clear really from the beginning of the book, there's already in a certain way a self-awareness in you that's running through the entire book, independent of the revelations you have on the retreat. It seems to me from the book, you come to a much deeper recognition of that separation between you and your thoughts, or maybe not separation, but a much deeper resolution. At least that's how it felt to me when I read it. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the impact on you over time of doing this. How have you seen yourself change through the process of objectifying this voice in your mind? Because I know that what you said was really, I think, just spot on when you said most of us, we just think it's me. That voice is me. But then there's that certain point where you start to pay attention, you realize there's just a voice always talking in your ear and it's not necessarily you. And then the more you pay attention and, the, and this, you just really broke this down really beautifully. You just start to see it very clearly and you have the space to make different choices. As you started to see that space grow in your capacity to objectify, can you speak a little bit more about how you've seen yourself change as a result? Yeah, absolutely. As I said, I, I really do believe that that's the linchpin yeah, <laughs> for, definitely. Me, for me. As soon as I really got that experientially and only through the regular practice of meditation was I able to get that yeah. and see that, my life took a huge, huge change and shift yeah. at that point. And I will say the book that we're talking about would never have been written had I not been able to distance myself from my inner critic. Mm -hmm. Because all my life I have been a shadow artist. And what that means is really somebody who works to support artists, but they aren't creating themselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's usually because they have some sort of fear of actually like embracing the creative process and, and becoming the artist that they want to be. So they kind of live vicariously through other people by supporting them fully. Got it. So I had been, you know, a publicist. I was working with movie stars and filmmakers. I was a producer working with graphic artists and all the while wanting to be them and all the while on the side writing and drawing and, and making music and stuff, but never sharing it really with anybody mm -hmm. because my inner critic was always telling me, oh, you're not good enough. This is crap. This isn't good. Why would you put that out there? A perfectionism ran rampant for me. Um, right. 
And pessimism as well was really where I was. There was always something wrong with everything. And that was my normal kind of script that was going on in my head. Through the course of recognizing that, wait a minute, I don't have to listen to that script. I don't have to do what it's telling me to do. Like I can actually say, thank you so much, because I understand why you're trying to help me out here. There's a part of me that is trying to protect me in a way by Mm. coming up with these words, but it's really hindering me from what my heart wants to be doing. So I'm going to say thank you very much, but you know, I'm going to go listen to my heart right now and disengage from that dialogue and not believe what it's telling me and then just move forward with what my heart wants. And the book would never have been written if during all the difficult parts of trying to make it happen that I had listened to it. Oh, this is too difficult. Why are you doing this? Just put it away. No one's going to care about it anyway. Yeah. Instead, I said, you know what? I understand that's insecurity talking and maybe that's true, but I want to do this. Thank you very much. And I'm going to disengage from that and redirect my attention to something more productive, like getting it out into the world. And I did. That book is the first thing for me creatively that I put out in a way that was very, very different than how I had been creating before. Really, it was the first public thing I had ever done Mm. and have since just been creating and putting things out more publicly as well. And I owe it all to the fact that I am able to now not only sit with the uncomfortable feelings that come up around insecurity and all of the emotions that the words that the inner critic evoke within me, right? So the feeling sensations, again, meditation has helped me sit in that uncomfortableness and know that it's going to pass, that I don't have to respond, react to destroy something or move away from something just because it's uncomfortable for a little bit and know that it's going to pass and stay in it. And then, you know, when the doubt and the, the fear show up to say, okay, I don't have to listen to this and there's another way that I can look at this and I can move forward and accomplish what my intention is. So it's been huge. That's awesome. So as you were talking, I just remember this part in the book where you look down at your arm at a certain point and you read what your tattoo says, which is this too shall pass. Yep. Can you say a little bit about that? Is that related to your mindfulness practice? You know, it's funny. The tattoo itself I got when I was living in New York. Aha. Uh-huh. Before I started getting serious about my my practice because everything, as I mentioned, was really falling apart and I was in this really low place. And I was looking for a phrase that would help remind me that it wouldn't always be this way because yeah. every cell of my body felt like that's where I was trapped, that my, the rest of my life was going to be this difficult. And so I got that on my wrist And I remember, too, when I got the tattoo, it was my first tattoo, that I remember saying to myself, at some point, you will look down at this when life is really wonderful and recognize, oh, that's going to pass, too. And it'll be a reminder to really enjoy the beautiful parts. So it won't just be about getting through the tough stuff. (laughs) And uh, And after, uh, after I started my practice and I was a couple of years into it, And life started shifting. I was kind of getting out of the dark night of the soul, so to speak. I remember having that moment where I looked down and I was like, ah, yes, feel the goodness, feel the joy that you're feeling right now. This has been a long time coming and this too shall pass. (laughs) Wow. Very prescient. Mm. One of the big insights you talk about in the book is related to understanding 
the difference between pain and suffering. Can you speak to that and your experience around that? How does mindfulness help you deal with pain and in some ways help you transcend the suffering that we experience in relationship to pain? Absolutely. I think it was Shinzen Young, who's a meditation teacher, who came up with this equation, pain plus resistance equals suffering or something to that degree. Mm, That's great. That has been my experience. In the book, I'm dealing with a tremendous amount of physical pain. And what I noticed at that point, and that was really the big first lesson for me around that, and it absolutely also applies to emotional pain, that when pain arises and we're fighting against it, we're resisting it, we don't want it to be there, we're wallowing in it in some way, trying to make it go away, that is where suffering comes from. That is where we actually suffer because we're creating the resistance. Mm. You know, there's the, the others saying something about like what we resist persists, right? Yes. The act of learning how to sit with something that feels uncomfortable and not trying to push it away or make it wrong or analyze it and just feel it, feel the sensation of it to the extent that we can in a compassionate way, mm-hmm. allowing the experience to be happening. As much as we can allow it to happen, it diminishes the suffering part of the pain. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to talk about because a lot of us experience chronic pain and for various reasons, all different reasons, and part of it's just getting older. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an important lesson, obviously, and it's important information for everyone to know that there is a measure of choice in how we can relate to pain. And I think you, you know, you just articulated that very clearly. And I just know from my own experience, just experimenting, I've had chronic and sometimes acute neck pain. And sometimes instead of resisting, I'll just ask, like, what is this? And it's amazing, like when I approach the pain consciously and in a spirit of curiosity or inquiry, because it's the last thing you usually do with pain, right? Yep. (laughs) And it's always amazing to me. It always has an effect. The resistance, it's such a pre-conscious reaction to pain that then when you start to engage with it, and I've had moments where, similar to what you describe in the book, the pain disappears. The thing is, it's always a revelation. I'm always floored by it. (laughs) But when I go in with a questioning response to it, a real interest, and actually go let my attention in the way, I think you you describe with an accepting spirit, it always changes my experience of the pain. Yeah, and in in investigating it, we notice, you know, because we generally tend to think pain is like one thing. It's a solid kind of thing, right? I am in pain. My elbow hurts or my neck hurts. Right. But if we actually investigate it, like you're talking about, and really allow ourselves to feel the pain, we notice that it shifts and it changes and it's made up of a lot of different sensations and it is this one solid thing. And then once we can start doing that, it tends to start to untangle Mm. and dissipate. There was a recent interview, a gentleman in Dr. Richard Miller, who uh, he teaches 
meditation to wounded warriors, war veterans. And his description, I loved his description of pain. He said, one way to think about pain is it's just compressed space. And I love that definition because, it, and I found it resonant with what you just said. Absolutely, you, yeah. You know, yeah. you bring your attention to pain and right away you're creating space. Space, yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And thanks, Dr. Miller. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Miller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Recently, you wrote a blog post about fear. And I really enjoyed reading it. It was very powerful. And I think it's something a lot of people can relate to. Can you speak to what happened and tell the story of what you described in that blog post? Because I found that the way you described it, it's a very practical way of both describing and understanding what mindfulness is really all about. Absolutely. I had written a solo show performance piece. Like a play? Yeah, just a solo performance kind of thing. Again, would not have been created had I not shifted my relationship to my perfectionism and my inner critic and all of that. Had never done anything like this before, being on stage for 70 minutes, you know, by myself fully, no one else to lean on other than me um, mm. to entertain everybody with very, very personal material that was semi-fictional, dealing with a lot of the stuff we talked about earlier in the podcast, a lot of the the numbing of my feelings, my mother's death and the feelings around that and all of that. So very personal stuff. Leading up to the um, performance, I was doing one performance in the Hollywood Fringe Festival in June. And leading up to it, I was going through some major terror. I really can't describe it other than to say it was terror. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, sheer Public terror. speaking. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I had had an experience when I was younger where, uh, as I mentioned, also I had a lot of anxiety and my parents had wanted me to play the French horn and I didn't really want to play the French horn, but I did it anyway. And I had a recital for that. And it was a solo recital. Again, my first. And I got up on stage and I was so nervous that I couldn't breathe. So yeah. I couldn't blow through the horn. So I wasn't able to, to play a single note. Right. I was humiliated. I felt completely humiliated. And unfortunately, right. you know, my parents didn't have the capability themselves to be able to kind of handle their own embarrassment around it. So I, did, I got very little to none uh, comfort around. Mm. It's going to be OK. This is you know, no big deal. And so I just remember, you know, the car ride home of everybody being really silent and never really being able to. Oh, my God. It's yeah, brutal. It's so brutal. So I had that, we'll say, traumatic experience as a kid yeah. of being on stage and freezing. You know, now as I'm getting ready to go perform, I'm having flashbacks to that experience and just picturing the audience as this really judgmental group, you know, who are, going, are just waiting for me to fail. I was having nightmares every night for a good solid week, right? Wow. And waking up with that... <gasps> feeling, which I know some of your listeners can probably identify with. Um, Definitely. Right. And just like, oh God, and the heart palpitations and all a, that. A pit in your stomach. Yeah. You name it. At one point in one of the dreams, I heard this voice say something to the extent of, you have the power to change how you look at this situation that is going to change how you feel. 
And I said to the voice, well, I know that, but how? How do I do that? Mm. Right? Like I, I intellectually can conceptualize that, sure, but how do I do that? And I woke up feeling frustrated, but but still, it, the voice stuck with me throughout the day. And then I was on the phone with a dear friend of mine who's also a, a mindfulness facilitator. And I was telling her about all the fear and the terror that I was going through. And I told her about what the voice had said. And as I was saying it, all of a sudden, it just, the insight came. It was like, oh, I just need to reframe how I'm looking at the audience and how I'm mm. looking at this experience. Okay, so the audience doesn't have to be this group of judgmental critics who are waiting for me to make a mistake and judge me, right? They actually, and in reality, are there because they want to support me. They want to receive a gift that I am giving them of this intimate story that I am sharing with them and the entertainment that I'm providing, they want to be there. Yeah. So it, it's actually an exchange of gifts. You know, I'm giving them a gift and they're giving me the gift of their presence and their attention. Because also the, the solo show, as I said, you know, deals with a lot of these issues of not feeling feelings. Like the main character that I portray, you know, we watch her downward spiral as she doesn't feel her feelings and she distracts herself and all of this and then ultimately understands at the end, the ramifications of what that has done to her. And there's hope that she's going to change because of that. That is a message that's really important to me. And so focusing on the gift of giving that message to people that can hopefully help maybe them turn their lives around and start facing some of the difficult issues when their lives start falling apart. Like really focusing on the fact that I'm giving that gift to people helped me. I mean, I got off the phone and it was really like, it was that abrupt. I felt great. Mm. And from that point forward, I had no fear, none. Even like an hour before going on, I was excited. The wow, that's awesome. The fear turned into excitement because I was like, I am so excited to go, go out there and share this story with people who want to hear it. <laughs> the nightmares stopped. Everything just shifted completely because I was able to reframe how I was looking at the situation. Yeah, it was quite amazing. That's fantastic. You know, in a certain sense, you're, you could ask, well, what does that have to do with mindfulness? But mm -hmm. I think it actually takes a certain presence and awareness of self to actually make the shift and ask the questions you are asking. Because part of how I think of mindfulness is to use your term, what's the frame? Yeah. You know, and how do we begin to reframe certain experiences, like we were talking about pain, you reframed pain, suddenly it becomes very different. You stop resisting it and then you reframed this experience and boom, something released. And that's kind of why I wanted you to share this story because it's a really granular, powerful example of how mindfulness, how you apply that kind of awareness in your life by shifting the frame in the way you did. Yeah, and specifically, too, in terms of relating it to mindfulness, and I talk about this in the blog post, too, is I recognize what I was doing was taking the mindfulness technique of you starting off on a focus point, right? And then yeah. noticing when you've drifted off away from that and then redirecting yourself to the focus point. So what I had been doing when I was in the terror part of it was I, my focus point was the terror, yeah, right? right. I was just focusing fully on the terror. And so when I was able to kind of reframe things, what I was able to do was 
use the I'm giving a gift as my focus point, mm. right? And anytime I started dipping into terror or fear, right? Because I did, I did, I caught myself trying to go there. But what was different was I was anchored in the I'm giving a gift, and this is an exciting experience for me. And yeah. using that as my anchor point. So anytime I started getting into fear, I said, "Oh, fear's showing up. Let me disengage from that. Bring myself back to." the anchor point of this is a gift and stay grounded in that. You know, I wouldn't be able to do that if I hadn't been practicing the mindfulness technique. That is something that has now permeated all these areas of my life. It's just been so helpful. I can't even, <laughs> I really can't even describe how helpful it's been, you know, even through these stories. Like, and these are just few, few of this, the ways that it has completely helped me to change the course of my life. So on this point of using this reference point, or the anchor point. You also share an example of this in your book. I wonder if you could just briefly share too. It's the toenail story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a more almost like mundane example, <laughs> yeah. but it's also powerful. And it, I feel like it demonstrates the same point that you're making. And would you mind telling that story? Yeah, absolutely. So the first retreat that I went on was a five-day retreat. I was dealing with some really significant back and neck pain that was pretty excruciating. And at one point I'm sitting there trying to find a way to sit with it, like literally just any way that I could sit with it. So I started going through my mind, okay, like what part of me does not feel pain at this point? Like, is there any part in my body that is not feeling uncomfortable? And the only place that I could find that was not feeling uncomfortable was my either my fingernail or my toenail. I can't remember which one it was. And I, and I really, I started laughing. And as soon as I was able to focus really my attention on that place, boom, you know, I was able, everything opened up for me and the pain, you know, dissipated. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, it's just so powerful when we can harness our attention and focus it in a wiser way, in a wiser way. I don't know how else to really put it, but in a, in a way that's, that's not making things worse for us. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also I feel like all these stories that you're sharing, they demonstrate how consciousness or awareness or attention is so fundamental to who and what we are. And we always have a choice in where we direct it yeah. and how we, how we direct it in very primary ways shapes the quality and direction of our lives. And I feel that really comes through in what you're sharing in, in all these examples. Yeah, and that ties into, you know, the that we have a choice, that we have a choice. Absolutely. And that is not something that a lot of people know. They really think that when they're hijacked by their emotions, that that's the only direction that they can head in, that they don't know that with practice, you can really get skillful at disengaging and redirecting that awareness and that consciousness. Yeah. Something else. Yeah. It's huge. So you're a UCLA certified mindfulness facilitator. Yes. So can you tell us what is a mindfulness facilitator exactly? And can you share with everyone what kind of training you went through to become a facilitator? When I was going through that kind of hermitage that I was talking about, when I moved to Los Angeles and really doing all the inner work, what came up for me, a lot of things came up for me, but one of the things was the work that I had been doing, I didn't, I didn't want to do anymore. I knew I wanted to do more creative work. 
as I shared. But also, I was so affected and impacted by the classes that I took at UCLA and the regular practice that I was like, I want to get this out into the world. This is something that is really resonating for me. I absolutely know that it is going to be a part of my life for the rest of my life. And I want to share it with people. And so I found out through the classes that I was taking that they had this certification program. It had only been like a year or two in the works at that point. And I, of course, applied and didn't get in the first time that I applied because I was still too young in my own regular practice. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't have enough on my meditation resume, so to speak. And right. But the director of the program, Diana Winston, contacted me and said, hey, you know, we're going to start this intensive practice program because there are quite a few people who were in situations like yourself who we think would be great candidates but need a little bit more experience. Um, and they're looking for deeper experiences than just like a four-week class or what have you. So we're going to we're creating this intensive practice program. It'll be a year-long program um, and a community that we're going to create. And uh, if you'd like to do that, then we'd love to have you. And so I, I did that. And that was mind-blowing. It was during the course of that that I ended up going on the nine-day retreat because it was one of the requirements that I go mm-hmm. on a, a retreat that I ended up writing the book from. It was just clear to me, yeah, this has taken me deeper and I just want to keep going deeper. And so I reapplied to the program and I got in. It's like a 10-month long program where there's papers every week or two that we need to write on certain topics of mindfulness. We have mentors that are assigned to us who are longtime practitioners who've been out there facilitating mindfulness, who help kind of guide us along the way. We have four practicums where we come in to UCLA and we're taught all together because there are people all over the world that come in for this now. Mm. We gather in person and we're taught by some of the major leading folks in the mindfulness world. And then at the end of it all, we get a certification from them as a certified mindfulness facilitator. And what that really boils down to is they put so much emphasis on embodying mindfulness as the way of facilitating it in the world. It's that, mm. that Gandhi quote, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. You know, their program is, it, you know, I went into the program thinking, oh, this is going to be about how to teach mindfulness, right? And for, for sure, there are parts of it that are about that. But the emphasis is on our own practices and deepening our own practices because we cannot facilitate it if we are not embodying it ourselves. Yeah. And so that's really what it is. It's about me being myself in the world with my friends and my family. I've already seen how it has affected those around me, you know, the butterfly effect. What would be an example or some examples of that? A good example is like my son, we were getting out of a car one day and he stopped on the sidewalk and just looked down and he saw a bunch of little ants walking by and he, he was like, you know, I would have stepped on those before, but I'm, you know, like we need to, everybody step over the ants because they're right here. Be really careful. We don't want to hurt them. Yeah. He used to talk about killing bugs and stuff like that. Again, not in like the didactic way of you shouldn't kill things, but really, you know, we're affecting, we're just being mindful of, hey, do I need to step on these things? No, I can spare their lives. If I'm noticing that they're there, I can step over them. Yeah. You know, like, 
like that to me, I was just like, oh my God, you know, he, he's got this, this viewpoint now because yeah. he's seen me do it. Right. That's, that's cool. I mean, because little boys, they yeah. live to dis- they live to destroy, right? They're just like, yes, exactly. let me throw the thing against the wall, and well, yeah, exactly. They're little agents of destruction. Yes, exactly. having been one, I know, <laughs> obviously, but that's so. Yeah, so my point being, why well, that's impressive. Yeah, so that that's just one of several examples of how you know, also just modeling mindful communication when I'm talking with people in difficult situations, and yeah. It has affected uh, every part of my life. That's why I do call it a a way of life. It really is a way of life. I think we're kind of getting to the end here. Jennifer, if you had simple words of wisdom or tips or advice for someone who's just starting a meditation practice, what would that be? Being intentional about the practice is key. It's really easy to not meditate. (laughs) Yeah, yes. So the intention really needs to be strong to do it or else you'll find ways not to pretty easy so intention is key and having that and holding yourself in integrity around that also if you're just starting out starting off with a small amount of time you know a lot of people and i was one of these people too wanted to just dive in all right i'm gonna sit for a half an hour right And like I shared, I couldn't sit for three minutes in the beginning. That was an eternity for me. You know, and it's like building a muscle. When we go to the gym, we don't start off, if we've never lifted weights before, we don't start off lifting 100-pound weights. We start off with five and then 10 and then 20, and we build ourselves up. So starting off small, like maybe just give yourself five minutes a day. There's a way to carve that out. Even if you have to split it up between two minutes in the morning and three minutes at night, like you can do it. You can make it happen if the intention is there to do so and you hold yourself to that. So I would say that's a huge thing. And then also knowing that it's a practice. There's no getting it perfect. There's no getting it right. It's a practice. You sit down and it's not about trying to stop thinking because a lot of people think that we're trying to stop thinking when we're meditating. No, what we're doing is we're just noticing when we've gotten on the thought train and deciding to consciously get off of that and come back into our bodies and back to the present moment. And that cycle of seeing when we're trapped in thought, disengaging from it and coming back to the present moment over and over and over again, that is the practice. Those are the reps, so to speak, that we're doing that builds the muscles, yes. gives all the benefits of all the things that we've talked about today. That's awesome. Thank you. So how can people learn more about you and your work? Where can they buy your book? And if someone were to want to work with you, how could they pursue that? Just let us know everything. Okay. If you're interested in buying my book, it is on Amazon. So if you just search for the Mindfulness Diaries, I believe just with those keywords, the book will pop up at this point. And there's an ebook and a soft cover available. So that's how you can find the book. And then various social media, a Mindfulness Diaries Google Plus group that you're a part of. And I think that's how we probably met, yeah? Yeah, totally. I think you posted an article from New Yorker about like mindfulness for strivers or something. And I think that's who I first remember connecting with you and then we it's been like a year we've had a thread yeah so we have a wonderful thriving engaging community on google plus if that's your jam join us also the mindfulness diaries there's a page and group on facebook and feel free to find me personally jennifer howd 
on Facebook as well. You know, as I said, mindfulness is a way of life for me. So most of my posts have some sort of mindfulness hint or, or twinge to them. I'm also on Twitter at Jen Howd, J-E-N-N-H-O-W-D, at Jen Howd. The mindfulnessdiaries.com is the blog that I write, usually about once a month or so. So feel free to go there, sign up for the blog posts and the newsletter and any workshops that I have if you're in the Los Angeles area. And then jenniferhowd.com is my personal website and more of the creative work that I do is kind of highlighted on that. And you can reach me personally if you want to work together individually or if you have a business that you'd like me to come in on and, and help out with your employees or anything like that, you can reach me through either the websites, jenniferhowd.com or the mindfulnessdiaries.com. There's a contact section there and you can, you can get in touch that way. And I think that's it for the moment. That's pretty good. That's a lot, right? Yeah, it is. (laughs) And uh, I will, I'm going to include links to all of that, everybody in the show notes for this episode. And also let me just put my weight such as it is behind the recommendation to go get Jennifer's book. It's a lot of fun. It's an easy read. It'll take you two hours to read it. And I guarantee you, you're going to love her storytelling, but even more, just the insights that she shares are so valuable, especially if you're interested in mindfulness meditation. This is a great way to get the practice, but from an inside perspective. Thank you. Yeah. And and I forgot to mention just in that last part too, that I work with writers, specifically if you have a book and uh, you're looking to get it out into the world and you're maybe feeling a little bit stuck or you need some sort of help with developmental editing. I bring the mindfulness approach to kind of like a writing coaching and and I work with several uh, writers right now in that method. And it's really uh, very, very rewarding for me and something that I absolutely love doing. So there's that too. Just want to toss that in there. Awesome. (laughs) Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been wonderful. I'm really great connecting with you verbally. Um, yes. Right? So wonderful, wonderful. And thank you for what you're doing for the world with your podcast and your website. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Jennifer. If you want to follow up with Jennifer directly, I've included a whole bunch of links in the show notes. You can find those by going to www.onemind.com. That's www.onemind.com. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Also, this show is sponsored by our free Meditation for Life guided meditation experience. Pick up two free guided meditations over at www.aboutmeditation.com. And finally, I love ending with quotes. This one is from Jack Cornfield, and he says, In the end, just three things matter. How well we have lived, how well we have loved, how well we have learned to let go.